You are listening to Killer. And this week we're opening the case file for Philip Markoff, the Craigslist killer. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin. All right, for the record, today's date is April 20th, the year 2009. The time is 2.45 p.m. To speak at Detective Dennis Harris of the Homicide Unit and also present Detective Robert Kenny. The young man being interviewed here this afternoon is Mr. Philip. Would you pronounce and spell your last name, please? Markoff. Right, would you spell your first name, please? P-H-I-L-I-P. One L? Yep. And spell your last name, please. M-A-R-K-O-F-F. Double F? Yep. Markoff. There's been a lot of stuff going on, and as a result of that stuff, there's been hundreds of tips coming in here. And if you haven't read the paper, you really don't have a clue to what we're talking about? No, I I really don't read the paper or watch the news. So in the last week or two, you haven't heard anything about some stuff that's been going on in and around Boston regarding uh, Craigslist's? No, I really really don't watch the news. I'm Maria Kramer at the Boston Globe. We're here downtown um, outside of the Suffolk District Attorney's Office where he has just given a press conference talking about the entire evidence that investigators had collected against uh, Philip Markoff, who um, at, at this point we all know was accused of killing a young New York woman in a uh, Back Bay hotel in 2009. Not only was this a, a serial armed robber, and a vicious murderer. But um, when I got the call after the murder at the hotel uh, that there had been a subsequent armed robbery in Rhode Island committed by the same individual, um, I realized that we were dealing with someone that murdered without hesitation and would not stop doing what he was doing until we stopped him. And so we had the trappings of a serial murder case here about to take off. The district attorney, Daniel Conley, he did take us through some evidence that we had not heard before, uh, some, some gruesome details that we had not heard before. For example, the blood that was still on Philip Markov's shoes the day he was arrested. This would have been the blood of Jalissa Brisman. But in between the time that he robbed uh, this first uh, prostitute and then killed Jalissa, he went to Baltimore to meet his grandparents um, for Passover, uh, for a Passover Seder, uh, which is a very eerie detail. You know, you think about the things that he was doing, and then he just goes and and, and takes part in in, in, a, in a family in traditional family ritual. It's um, it, it was a startling detail to hear that. The one question that won't be answered in those files that we've received and have yet to look through and that wasn't answered by Dan Conley at the press conference is why Philip Markoff did this. Dan Conley said all he can tell us is maybe we should ask a forensic psychologist. It's not clear why somebody would have um, attacked these women, especially somebody with such a bright future who had never had a criminal record. Some things are just not explainable. An autopsy is scheduled today for the so-called Craigslist killer, who apparently committed suicide in a Boston jail Sunday. 24-year-old Philip Markov was awaiting trial for the brutal murder of a masseuse he met online. Our Andrea Canning has more. The same weekend Philip Markov was found dead in his cell, he should have been celebrating his one-year wedding anniversary. But last year, his fiancée called off the engagement after discovering he was the alleged Craigslist killer. I ask that the defendant be held without bail. Markov's trial was in less than eight months, but police sources say he took his own life Sunday by cutting himself repeatedly with a jail-issued razor and suffocating himself with a garbage bag from his cell trash can. He would not be the kind of person who wanted to face the music, face the trial, be embarrassed and humiliated in public during his trial for first-degree murder. The former Boston University med student was accused of killing Jaleesa Brisman in April 2009 and was later charged with robbing two other women who advertised exotic services on Craigslist. Last year, he used his shoelaces to try and hang himself and then tried suicide again by running a serrated spoon over his wrists. Markov maintained his innocence until the end. A spokesperson for the family of Jalissa Brisman released a statement saying the long-awaited criminal prosecution was their only opportunity to confront him, and now he has taken that away as well. For Good Morning America, Andrea Canning, ABC News. So Craigslist, as uh, many of you I'm sure are very familiar with, was created by Craig Newmark in 1995. 
and began as an email distribution list for local classifieds in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, the service expanded to the web in 96, and by 2000 it expanded to other local cities. Now it's an international web service that allows individuals to buy, sell, and trade goods and services just like the newspaper. While Craigslist has many great uses, it also has some not-so-great uses, like erotic services section. This is where this case begins. April 10, 2009, an ad was placed on Craigslist which read, Spend time with the sweet blonde. Give me a call so we can spend some time together. The ad contained the phone number to a Las Vegas resident who was in Boston at the time, Trisha Leffler. Within minutes, a man reached out to Trisha and set up a meeting with her. About 20 minutes later, the man who inquired about the ad was at the Westin Hotel in Boston. Trisha and the man later identified to be Philip Markoff enter her hotel room at the Westin. Upon entering, Trisha notices that Philip is a good-looking young man and feels quite safe. As soon as she closed the door, Philip brandishes a gun. He tells her that if she complies with him, no harm will come to her. He put on black leather gloves, pulled out zip ties, and began tying her up. Philip robbed Trisha, taking about $800 cash, her credit and debit cards, and then took her cell phone and tried to remove his phone number from the call log. At this point, he had taken his gloves off and was leaving fingerprints all over the phone. Next, he found a pair of her underwear on the floor and stuffed them into his pocket. Then, he moved Trisha to the bathroom and tied her to the door and taped her mouth shut using three pieces of tape. However, he still did not have his gloves on. Philip then proceeded to go cut the phone lines and leave the room. Trisha eventually escapes her ties within just a few seconds and begins looking out of the peephole on the door. She slowly peers out of her room, looking both ways. She doesn't see any signs of Philip. Then she heads down the hallway looking to see if he's near the elevators, but he wasn't there. Trisha, being scared, went to a neighboring hotel room and asked to use their phone to call security to report that she had been robbed. Boston police arrive and immediately take the case seriously, not questioning Trisha's chosen line of work. Yeah, so you've got Philip. He shows up at this hotel, and he's pretty bold uh, right, right off the bat, just right, right into this woman's room. And just starts going at it with this gun and, you know, immediately has her tied up and, you know, almost like he'd done this before, but at the same time, like he'd never done this before because he's leaving a lot of things, you know, behind in his wake where he's allowing the victim to identify him, you know, see his face, he's leaving fingerprints, um, you know, has gloves, but doesn't wear them, which seems a little stupid. <laughs> I don't, I don't understand. Um, you know, so you've got uh, quite a few mistakes just in this first case alone, um, you know, and and it's quite bizarre. Yeah, yeah. not to mention that it did, it, to me it sounded like it was his first time um, doing something like this or, you know, maybe his first or second time because uh, you would think if he was, you know, going to the, taking that extra effort to bind her up and tie her, um, she wouldn't have gotten away so quickly. It sounded like, she got away almost instantly from the way he had tied her up and she was immediately looking out the people to see if he was still in the room, but he must've just like did a 180 and bolted. He probably panicked at that time. So yeah, I agree. It sounded like it, it may have been his first victim. Yeah. It actually I, I, called the cops. Right. Right. Yeah. I think, I mean, as we get through the case, there is definitely a, and I don't know if we wrote it up in, in this week's case, but when doing the research, there was, uh, you know, authorities were looking into if he had done this before. And uh, I don't know that they ever came to that conclusion. Um, but yeah, the one thing that was interesting, uh, like you said, she escapes her ties within seconds. And she says that in an interview I, I listened to. She she busted loose out of these ties quickly. I mean, within 20, 30 seconds of him exiting the room. And uh, I believe he exits down the stairwell, if I remember correctly. So he doesn't take the elevator. He goes straight for the stairwell and, and gets the F out of there. So, you know, he's out of there quickly, but uh, he left a lot, a lot of evidence behind and, uh, you know, wasn't quite the most elusive person in the world. So, um, it, yeah, it's definitely, uh, uh, you know, an odd situation here. You know, he, he comes right in the room brandishes the gun instantly. Um, I'm actually kind of surprised after doing research on Philip that he didn't um, go through with anything else, you know, like any the reason he was there in the first place, you know, or why she placed that ad in the first place. And, um, and yeah, and part of that is, so she places this ad on Craigslist and the erotic services section and, um, you know, under the guise of like hanging out, <laughs> you know, when, mm -hmm. when you hear that. And so he answers that ad, 
and then uh and then and within minutes you know he's there so not a not good for her but um you know and and the good thing here is the police like you said at the end you know they look into this right away they don't care that she's um like an escort or a prostitute on craigslist they're just they're looking for this guy like they, they don't care about her chosen line of illegal profession at the moment you know they're they're after this guy yeah right i mean and at that point it, everything happened so quickly that she she just met up with the dude there nothing happened it wasn't like a a sting she they didn't exchange good money for services or anything like that so i mean technically she was the victim he robbed her i mean it happened so quickly he took off so yeah and that's the thing it sounds like it happened super fast on april 14th just four days after philip's encounter with trisha philip would strike again similar to the first encounter he answers another ad on Craigslist, this time for massage services. He meets up with Julissa Brisman at a Marriott hotel in Boston. The exact details on what happened are not 100% known, but police theorize that Philip brandished a gun immediately upon entering the room with Julissa. He was able to get at least one zip tie on her, but she began to fight back. She was believed to be hit over the head by the butt of the gun and was shot. The struggle occurred near the entrance of her hotel room, so when Philip fled the scene... Jalissa's body fell out of the open door and into the hallway. Another guest in the hotel heard a struggle down the hallway. She pokes her head out of the door and notices Jalissa's body half in and half out of the door in the hallway for her room. She approached the person on the floor and tried to assess the situation. The guest called for security immediately. As the security guard moved the hair away from Jalissa's head, he noticed blood everywhere and shouted to the onlooking guest to get back into their room. The guest stayed in the hallway anyway and heard the guard radio for an ambulance. Within an hour, Jalissa was pronounced dead at Boston Medical Center. So the woman is looking down the hallway and notices this body just like halfway and half out, you know, half in and half out of a room. And she's like, that's kind of weird. <laughs> so she goes over and she's like, whoa, something really weird is going on. So she calls for security. Security comes up. You know, they're looking into it. You know, it's just kind of, you know, this bizarre situation. Um, and after police start investigating this attack, you know, and they start kind of putting the pieces together and realize that, you know, there was a, another Craigslist hookup here. Um, you know, a, a Craigslist panic starts to ensue and people start, you know, becoming nervous of, of what's going on on Craigslist. And another thing that the authorities mention is, you know, this is around the time of the Boston Marathon. And, you know, people are in and out of the town for a couple of weeks, you know, leading up to the marathon as they prepare for the race. And so, they're, you know it's a high traffic time and they're trying to figure out like, is this person just somebody who floated in here this, you know, this week for the marathon or is this a resident? You know, they're, they're starting to run through all the possible options and it starts to kind of convolute the case a little bit as they start going through all of their information and figuring out, you know, what's going on here. Yeah. One thing I was surprised with, with, with the, those few details right there that you described, um, the one hotel patron noticed her hanging out in the hallway you know, did did they not hear the gunshot? It, it was on the same hallway on the same floor of the hotel. I'm assuming they would have heard the gunshot too. And like, what the heck's going on? And I think that's this girl laying on the floor. Yeah. And I think, I think that's what spawned the woman to look into the hallway was she heard a lot of noise. Mm-hmm. And what I read and heard is she just kind of says she hears a struggle or a lot of noise going on. They never specifically say she heard a gunshot. Uh, I don't know why, you know, I'm assuming that she did hear the gunshot and I don't know why you wouldn't just say like, I I heard what sounded like a gun. Um, but maybe, I don't know, the hotel rooms aren't necessarily the best insulated, but it depends how many rooms away this happened. You know, you could hear it and maybe it isn't that loud, you know, like 10 rooms down the end of the hallway. Maybe it just sounds like a bang, like someone dropped something when you go through all the walls and everything, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't know. That I, I found that interesting too. I was, you know, reading about this and I'm thinking to myself, man, no one ever says like I heard I heard a gun go off in the hotel. Right. Yeah. And it seemed like the security guard was there pretty quick too. I, again, it, it sounds like when he decided to flee the scene, I mean, he was out. You know, the the security guard gets there. She's the girl is still alive and doesn't pass away until she gets to the hospital. Is you know his response time had to be fairly quick. So. Yeah, it does seem like that's the kind of common thread with the first two incidents. It's like everything happens very quickly. Like from the time that somebody, that he's there and the time that he leaves and then the time that the authorities get involved is fast. Yeah. And 
at that point, being the second time that this has happened, you know, I'm, I'm sure the authorities are pulling surveillance footage, but I'm, I'm surprised that the security guards and maybe the security guards at the hotel and in with all the cameras they have in these hotels, especially Weston. Weston is, uh, I've never stayed in one, but I think it's a pretty nice place. I think it's one of the higher ranked hotels and, mm-hmm. you know, I surprisingly, you know, I'm surprised depending on what floor he was on and whatnot, I'm surprised they went able, you know, make an attempt to, you know, nab somebody at the front door, but yeah, it seems to be his, uh, his behavior is just, I mean, he's hauling ass out of these places when he does something bad. Well, it's kind of smart. I mean, he didn't yeah. get apprehended at any of these places, so at least he's getting out of there quickly. Uh, the one thing, so between the time that this attack occurs and after they start reviewing some of the evidence, uh, they do notice that he looks similar to the man that they saw on surveillance at the first hotel, and they start kind of connecting these dots a little bit. So they go back to Trisha Leffler, and they show her a picture of him from the second attack with Julissa, where he actually commits a murder. And he says, the detective shows her the picture and says, is this him? And she says, how'd you get such a good picture of him? And he, and, uh, you know, she's trying to rack her brain. And, uh, and she goes, it looks like that's when he came into my hotel room. He goes, no, actually this is when he went to this other hotel. And she kind of gets this (laughs) look of fear on her, you know, and she's like, what? there's another one. So they start realizing there's a serial offender here. And that's when they start trying to really connect all these dots together and figure out, okay, so now we've had two attacks. Craigslist is a connection. We have some photos. We still don't know who this dude is and they move on. Yeah. And, and at this point, one person's already dead. So I'm sure their sense of urgency was, you know, at that point was at an all time high. They wanted to make sure that this wasn't going to happen again. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. They get really excited about this case, not in a excited, happy way, excited in a let's get this figured out way, and they get moving on it. So two days after the murder of Jalissa, an attack occurs in Warwick, Rhode Island, 60 miles outside of Boston. Philip answered a Craigslist ad for a $200 private lap dance. Philip arrives at the Holiday Inn Express, where they set up to meet, and follows the same MO from the prior two attacks. This time, as Philip was pointing the gun, the stripper reports his hand was very shaky. Philip tells the woman that he's broke and just wants her money. He then zip ties, zip ties the woman and begins going through her room. At this point, her cell phone begins to ring over and over. Philip gets nervous and asks her, why is her phone keep ringing? Unbeknownst to Philip, her husband was waiting to hear from, from her in the lobby to ensure that she was okay. When he did not receive the okay, he began calling her phone. So her husband's here, and he's sitting out in the lobby, and he's waiting on, you know, basically the uh, the all-clear call from his wife because he knows what's going on. He's just sitting out in the lobby. So it's kind of like almost a pimp-prostitute relationship here, which is kind of bizarre. So the husband's sitting out in the lobby just waiting to get the, um, hey, I'm good, things are going okay, text message. Not that they're done, but just that things are okay. And so he's sitting there, and he's waiting, and, you know, he gets worried, so he runs up to the room and... At this point, he enters the room. So he has a second key card, and he can get into the room as well as the stripper. And this surprises Philip. And so he turns and points the gun to the husband and then takes off running down the hallway. Well, the husband takes off after him, but he ends up going the opposite direction that Philip went, and so they never meet up. So uh, at this point, um, you know, Phil is on his third attack. He's starting to seem a little bit nervous and anxious. He's always after the money. So he's taken money in the first case, he's taken money in the third case, and I'm not sure if he does in the second one because it seems like after the murder happens, he's just out of there. And uh, I don't know a whole lot of detail about what he stole from um, Julissa Brisman, if anything. It seems like they just had a struggle right away. He shot her and took off. So um, so now you have the first and third cases where he's definitely robbing people, and he's definitely motivated by taking their money. And then he uh, you know, gets out of there as quickly as possible. Yeah, and that's one thing that I found fairly bizarre about this. He's he's a second year medical student at, at Boston University, and he he's robbing these girls for their money, claiming in this third attack that he's broke. You know, generally speaking, and I don't want to profile him as you know a medical student, but hey, for the most part, these kids come from pretty 
you know, well-to-do families. They're either there on some type of scholarship or they're academically, they're really excelled. And, and at the very least, they're there on some type of scholarship, right? So I don't know if he has, I don't know the details of if he has a drug problem or if he truly is broke, you know, what's the story behind him robbing these girls for their money? Well, um, I listened to the, uh, interrogation tape for him and his, uh, fiance at the time. And the fiance alludes to the fact that they're basically broke and that, uh, they take out student loans to live and that that's a common practice amongst those in the medical industry as they're going through college is basically they just take them out to live while, because they work so much while they're studying so much, they can't really have a real job. So unless your family's paying for it, you're on student loans. And I think she said at one point they were $130,000 in debt, and he was only in year two. So he was a bright guy. And we'll get into the details of him um, a little later, but, you know, it seems like for sure they're definitely, he's motivated by getting some cash because for whatever reason he has next to none. So, um, you know, it's definitely a motivation at this point. And I think, you know, when we get into his profile a little bit more, we'll understand a lot more about why he was doing what he was doing. From the very beginning on the case, Philip was not very careful. He would take his gloves off, leaving fingerprints, was captured multiple times on surveillance video, allowed witnesses to see his face, and used his computer to leave digital traces of evidence. One such piece of digital evidence came to authorities' attention when a friend of Julissa's uncovered an email which contained the IP address of the person in contact with her prior to her murder. Authorities were able to trace the IP address back to an apartment building in Quincy, Massachusetts. This trace led investigators to the doorstep of Philip Markoff, a 23-year-old medical student. Philip was put under surveillance, and police began a stakeout. As police watched his movements, they noticed that he looked quite similar to the man on the surveillance video, but needed to confirm so they reached out to Trisha Leffler, victim number one. So at this point in time, we're a week removed from the first attack. Police had noticed Philip was on the move and needed to quickly confirm his identity before he potentially crossed any state lines. They knew he was headed to a casino in Connecticut with his fiancée, Megan McAllister. The problem here is they wanted Trisha to identify him first, but she was no longer in Boston. Police quickly connected with a detective in Manhattan and rushed over the lineup to Trisha to have her verify his identity. She confirmed Philip in the lineup of photos, and at this point, the go-ahead was given to pull over Markov. So right here, we're going to pause and dig into who was Philip Markov. So as I alluded to a few minutes ago, um, so Philip was the son of Susan and Richard Markov. Philip's father was a dentist in Syracuse, New York. He graduated high school. This is Philip. Graduated high school from... Vernon Verona Sherrill High School in 2004, and he was a member of the National Honor Society, the History Club, and the Youth Court. He was also a member of the golf and bowling teams for his high school. After high school, he attended Boston University's School of Medicine as a medical student. By all accounts, Philip was a bright, personable young man who was well-liked and appeared like he was on the fast track to a successful life. But Philip had quite the dark side. It was discovered after his arrest that he had an alternate online persona. He spent a lot of time pursuing various sexual fantasies online and even had a screen name, Sex Addict 5385. Authorities found that if you added an additional digit to his screen name, he had even more profiles online under the handle Sex Addict 53885. The second profile was used on a website called Alt.com, which is a website for kinky sex. He listed his interests as chains, collars, leashes, and experimentation with transvestites. I'm sorry, but I really loved that you had to read that. So anyway. (laughs) I appreciate that you gave it to me. (laughs) That section, nothing else. Anyway, uh, so Phil's an interesting dude here. I mean, you see that he's got some weird stuff going on uh, online with this sexual addiction kind of stuff. He's named Sex Addict 5385 or 53885, whichever handle you prefer. Um, I believe that the the person who discovered the alternate profile was just an investigator. I don't like a, almost like a web sleuth, I think, or a journalist. It wasn't the, uh, like an actual law enforcement member. And they connected the dots because they looked at the profile and noticed that it was a 23 year old male in the Boston area. And they found a photo of Phillips torso 
that matched a photo they found on his computer later. So they were able to pin the two accounts together. And, uh, you know, it was interesting. But like I said, um, you know, he's a medical student. He's a bright student. He was in the National Honor Society and the History Club. And most interestingly, the youth court. Um, after he is uh, captured and, and arrested, um, you know, during his interrogation, police start talking to him. And they're kind of reading him his rights and stuff. And he keeps asking about an attorney, but he never really says he wants an attorney. He wants the police to give him an attorney, and they clearly keep stating to him, hey, dude, we don't give you an attorney, but we give you the phone and you can call one. And he keeps going back to it again and again and again throughout the interview. And it was just a bizarre way of doing things. And being that he's on the youth court, which I didn't even know those things existed, I I guess it was a court that would handle like mock trials and stuff. Mm-hmm. He seemed like he had no idea what was going on when he was in the interrogation room. Maybe it was just that he was nervous or whatever, but you would think you would understand the basic right that you have a right to an attorney and that you just need to go call them, Even and they explain it to him several times over. Um, so I thought that was kind of weird. Um, the other thing that was strange was, uh, you know, like I had mentioned earlier, so he, he clearly they have money problems. You know, he and his fiance. Uh, his fiance, she was a uh, she worked in the medical profession as well. Uh, however, she had a back injury at some point, and so she was basically looking for part time work, but never could find a job, which was a little strange to me. She acted like you know she had this hard time finding a job where she would like inquire about nanny jobs or whatever. I don't know the degree of her back problems, but she apparently couldn't work. So that led to them having money issues. And she had no clue that Philip was doing any of these things on the side. Yeah, she definitely had no clue. I listened to to some of her interrogation tape too. I wanted to throw a little bit of audio in the trailer, but the audio was, was fairly low on quality. But, you know, as, as they're going through and asking her questions, did you know he was booking a hotel room at this hotel or that hotel? And uh, meeting up for massages and stuff, you could tell in her voice that she was like, you know, oh my God, what am I dealing with now? Or yeah, you could happening? hear it. Yeah, in her voice, the whole time they're talking to her, you can hear her thinking almost like, okay, she's trying to put all the dots together as they're asking questions. And she keeps even asking like, can I ask you what this is about or who you're talking about? Like <laughs> she keeps inquiring throughout that interrogation. Like, well, uh, what do you mean? And, uh, who, who is, who are we talking about here? And then, you know, they keep asking her about Craigslist and she's kind of trying to like connect those dots together. You know, what about Craigslist? Cause the authorities are clearly asking her, like, do you post anything on Craigslist? Do you get on there so that they can basically go, no, it's not her. It's the fiance, Philip, who's doing all this stuff and off this internet traffic from their house. So they're trying to pinpoint, you know, they're doing a great job of trying to like isolate her and say, okay, she has no idea of this, and here's Philip. He's doing all of this because there's only two people in that house that could be, and he's the only other person. Yeah, and and the one interesting piece um, that that just shows that she had no idea what was going on with Philip at that point in time when she was being interrogated was she brought up the point of yeah, when I was visiting with my mother, told me about this guy that was doing this at hotels, almost as a warning of you know be careful. I know you're in that area, you know, kind of, you know, like the motherly thing to do would be, you know, just be careful. Things are going on in your area. Uh, I don't want anything to happen to you. And, you know, and the ironic thing at that point is we, we knew what happened and listening to that interrogation tape, it almost gave me chills because her, her mother was saying, watch out for this dude. And it's the, it's the guy that she's engaged to, which was just crazy. Yeah, that was the crazy part. And the other interesting thing here is that you know, throughout his initial arrest and uh, the beginning of, you know, the evidence gathering and all that stuff, she never breaks off that engagement with him right away. Like, she still supports him for a little while and stands by him for a minute. And then at some point, something changes and she's like, screw this, I'm out. <laughs> you know, and she breaks that off. Um, you know, so she she's fascinating to me in this case just because she is so unaware to what's going on and so blind to it and it's not you know she's not working so what is she doing when he's doing these things yeah i i honestly have no idea and and to me the some of the stuff that i went over there right at the end of that 
that last piece of you know explaining what kind of person he was i i find it hard to believe that she wasn't a little bit suspicious of him it, since they were in an intimate relationship for that long or that that period of time right something weird had to happen in the bedroom not well, that i'm over analyzing it or whatever but when when you're that close to somebody you know some things would to me would seem kind of creepy at some point just by what he said or how he acted you could be right about that. The other the other option, though, there is that he suppressed some of these emotions and he wouldn't act on them with her. That's why he was going online, because either A, she wasn't into it, or B, he was too nervous to bring some of these things up that he wanted to get into, you know? And so, like, he just didn't. And so he would go try and seek these things out with people that he didn't know, because it's kind of like an anonymous, like, I don't feel nervous to ask somebody i don't really know because we've kind of met under the guise that we're both weird you know and versus where he's with megan and you know they already know each other and they have a relationship together and they probably you know did the whole courting and dating thing up front and you know so you kind of get to know somebody first and you know instead of just coming out of the gate asking for some you know chains collars and leashes going on here uh you know that that could also be another angle there where she is still completely oblivious to his desires and fantasies overall it just makes you think that she really didn't know who the guy was like like i alluded to her mother was warning her about you know be careful there's somebody doing bad things in boston and she's engaged to this guy has no clue so she obviously was oblivious to you know who he really was you know his i don't know it his, almost like he had a bipolar side like a crazy sex driven side um now that we know that he you know they're they're broken law students he's it didn't sound like you know crimes just to get that adrenaline going and get it going it, it almost sounded like it started out of crimes of necessity at first but i th luckily the, the way this case you know unravels and all of the evidence around it and they get him you know into questioning right away thank goodness you know it, it's hard to say how far that could have escalated we we've talked about this i think in you know one of our very first cases was some of these guys that start developing a pattern of doing these things and they just they get more and more elevated at what they do and then it turns into that adrenaline rush of how much can i do before i get caught what can i get away with yeah, they have so. to keep escalating to satisfy that addiction that they have to whatever is driving them in the first place. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, we're going to talk about the evidence here in a minute. But like you said, you know, there is definitely this alternate personality that he has because he's so straight laced, like in everything he's done all the way up to this point, you know, he's an honor society member. He graduated college in three years and then went into his second, you know, into his, uh, you know, medical school. So he, he went to his first college at SUNY and then he goes over to Boston Medical, you know, right after that. So he's like, you know, just progressing along and has this just this track ahead of him that everyone would look at this guy and go, man, he's doing things right. And that guy's going to be something someday. And, uh, you know, little do you know, he's got this <laughs> alternate persona and he's, you know, exercising it online and, you know, talking to people online and meeting up with them. And obviously he feels comfortable enough to hit up the classifieds on Craigslist and go to the erotic services section. So he's, he must be quite familiar. And I'm kind of curious and never saw anything about it, but did he ever meet up with anybody from these things other than the people that he encountered to rob? Like, did he actually ever use these services for what they're intended for? I, I have a feeling he did, you know, some of the case file stuff that we covered and, you know, we're going to talk about the evidence here in a second, but I'm sure that they only really publicized, you know, the the evidence that really pinned these crimes on him. Once they unraveled that digital footprint, I I, I would almost bet there was other other times where he was just meeting up with these girls to take care of his needs at that time, looking for those services and doing that. And then he got the idea, you know, he probably saw a couple of these girls with a pretty nice stack of cash and it's like oh wait a minute these would be easy targets to take their money right oh yeah yeah and the and the one other thing to note here about the money situation that i didn't touch on earlier so uh police knew that he was headed to a casino 
you know, and, and they knew he was going to Connecticut and they wanted to nab him before he crossed state lines because they leave their jurisdiction and they can't arrest him anymore. So they find out it seems like he's a gambler too. So he's always trying to like win money because they have these money problems, which just goes to show you, like, as I mentioned earlier, when they're talking to him about getting an attorney and then like his methodical, like his, his method for, uh, obtaining more money is to a rob people and then b go gamble it at the casino like it just shows you like there's just something not quite right and he's probably one of these people who's like super duper book smart but is a complete dipshit when it comes to being like you know having any street smarts that's just how he comes off to me like super bright bookworm kind of guy can sit there and ace all these classes and studies and does well but then if you like ask him like common sense stuff like you know, hey, do you know like that you need to change your furnace filter every few months? Like, <laughs> he'd be like, "What's a furnace filter?" You know, like yeah. that's the kind of guy that this is, and it goes to show you in his in his crimes. Like, dipshit leaves no gloves on, leaves fingerprints everywhere, face all over video. Like, I don't know, uh, it's just bizarre. No, I, <laughs> I'm, I totally agree. I think he's oblivious to those. I don't know what you would even call them, those common sense things that you would do as a criminal to try to avoid being caught, I guess. Yeah, yeah. He, I mean, av- he, avoid capture, like, conceal your identity. <laughs> right, and, you know, the the dumbest thing, and just like you said, why would you steal money from people offering erotic services and then think that you could go get rich quick at a casino? It's It's like the dumbest thing ever, <laughs> to me, in my opinion. Oh, yeah, it's really stupid. So let's get into the evidence here and talk about it because we're mentioning a lot of it. So let's let's go dig in directly to this part. So Markov left a ton of evidence in his wake. At the beginning of his crime spree, not only did he leave fingerprints all over the place, but he made no attempt to conceal his face from security cameras or the victims. In my opinion, the two most damning pieces of evidence were the emails exchanged between Markov and Brisman, which contained his IP address, but also the 9mm gun that he was using at the crime scenes. Um, it was also recovered from his home. And what's weird about this, or I guess kind of interesting here, is he had hollowed out a Grey's Anatomy book and uh, and put the gun in there, and the authorities found that. And so they were able to test it for ballistics and match them to those at the crime scene. And then uh, another piece of evidence that they were able to recover was the underwear that he stole from Trisha Leffler in attack number one. And that was hidden under his mattress with a few other pairs of underwear that they couldn't identify. So... He's leaving all of this evidence behind and then like easily traceable back to his home. And they get, you know, they pull out this gun out of this book, which is just weird. I mean, I I don't know. Maybe he was, (laughs) he'd tell his uh, fiance, hey, I'm going to go study. Grabs Grey's Anatomy, but there's a nine millimeter inside and he walks out the door with it. See you later. I'm going to go rob some hookers. (laughs) I mean, yeah, that, that, that piece right there is laughable. I I don't know. It, (laughs) The only thing that I can formulate right there with the hollowed out book is, you know, he's a young guy. This was 2009. So I think he might've watched a little bit too much Scooby-Doo as a kid. (laughs) I thought, I think that's the only place that that ever happened that I can remember. Maybe some movies, but (laughs) jankies. Yeah. (laughs) Oh man. Yeah. It's just one of those things that, you know, it just, the guy's just not quite right in the head like there's obviously if you're gonna go do this stuff you're not quite right in the head to begin with but then like you know to leave this trail behind you of all of this evidence that's easily traceable and you're not concealing your identity in any way you bring gloves to the first crime scene and don't wear them or wear them for like 30 seconds and take them off like you're just stupid (laughs) i mean plain and simple i mean this guy's an idiot he's very bright at school but he has no common sense and he's leaving all this evidence behind and you know, he's attacking women and he's doing all these other stupid things. And he just, he's the smartest dumbass I've ever seen. Yeah, no, I completely, I completely agree. But in all, all seriousness, um, you know, the gun was one of the tools that he used to commit these crimes. And if he was really having money problems, you know, like we, we've gathered to this point in the case, you know, you think if he doesn't want to get caught, we know he's a dumbass, but if he had no intention at some point of ever getting caught, the one thing that he needed to get rid of was the gun, and he didn't. But, you know, maybe he's thinking, I might need this again. This is, you know, this is how I'm getting the money that I need to, you know, try to either go gamble and get rich or whatever. But, 
you know, if, if, especially if it's a gun that he bought off the street, some shady dude picked it up. It's, you know, it's an untraceable weapon. Probably costs a little bit of money, you know, more so than going to the gun store and buying it. Yeah, well, um, I'm pretty sure he actually did buy this at the gun store. If I remember, I came across that at some point. He went to a gun store maybe a year earlier and purchased the weapon. So, I mean, it's all traceable. He bought it, too. Like, you know, it wasn't like someone else's gun that he bought off of them that came from the gun store. He bought that gun himself, so they have it, you know, they can link him back to that. Yeah, he's just, you know, he's a dipshit. I mean, at the end of the day, like the stuff that he does, it's so ridiculous. And, you know, what you worry about with this guy is how fast he's going through and doing these things over and over and over again, because they're going to catch him. He's leaving too much evidence, but it's a matter of like, how fast can we stop him before he gets to the next person because he's so stupid and he might kill them if they fight back. So like, that's what you're really worried about. It's not, you know, he's leaving this like damning trail of evidence behind. And it's just way too easy to identify him, obviously. I mean, they figured out fairly quickly. It, I think the, the whole time span from the first attack to the last attack is like a week or so, like right around there. So, I mean, you got seven days and you've already found him, but he's attacked three times. So, I mean, that's pretty every other day, you know, he's going out and attacking somebody. So you've got to get to him quickly, but he's also giving you the ability to get to him quickly. I'm glad that he was, you know, that careless in the way that he he went about, you know, committing these crimes because you know it, it, it could have been a whole lot worse it, it's it's a shame that the one girl was shot and killed in the struggle that he had but you know I, i'm glad he was an idiot i'm glad he was caught right away so um yeah he, i agree he, he pretty much got himself caught <laughs> no doubt oh yeah i mean he he ran right into it because he's an idiot markoff ended up pleading not guilty to seven charges including kidnapping armed robbery, weapons violations, and first-degree murder. On April 21, 2009, as Markov was transported from Boston Police Headquarters to the Nashu Street Jail, he stuffed wads of toilet paper down his pants, telling detectives, I might need this later, ABC News reported. Hours later, Markov made his first suicide attempt. He pulled leather strips out of his boat shoes, tied them together, and tried to hang himself from the bars on his cell. He was transferred to a secure medical unit and put under 24-hour suicide watch. On April 30, 2009, a day after his fiancée, Megan McAllister, broke up with him in jail, he attempted to rake a serrated spoon over his wrist. On August 15, 2010, Markov commits suicide. A law enforcement source reported that Markov was able to take a razor blade from one of his disposable razors that jail inmates are allowed to use and he used it to slash not only his wrist, but the femoral artery in his leg. He then wrapped his wound in a garbage bag to conceal the blood, and he put another garbage bag over his head and tied it tight around his neck. Um, He also shoved uh, toilet paper or gauze down his throat, too, so that he couldn't be revived. He didn't come out for breakfast. He didn't come out for morning wreck. They went in to check on him, and he was dead, the law enforcement source said. He clearly knew what he was doing, the source said. He used his medical expertise... And he, they say that he was being threatened by fellow inmates because he took their canteens playing chess. It was also reported that he wrote the name of his ex-fiancee, Megan, in blood in his cell. So, you know, he, he tries to kill himself several times, and then he's finally successful on August 15th. Um, I don't feel any pity for him, honestly. Uh, it's probably better off that way because it just... I mean, he took the coward's way out in a way because he doesn't have to face you know, trial and, you know, be paraded through the public and face, you know, the Brisman's family and all that stuff. But at the same time, you just put an end to it. The interesting thing was there the things that he did to, con- you know, to conceal the fact that he was killing himself right there at the very end. He was capturing the blood with that, that bag over his leg and putting the toilet paper in his throat so he couldn't be revived. He, you know, he clearly formulated a way to kill himself the way that he couldn't be you know, brought back in case, you know, they were trying to do emergency, you know, CPR and things like that on him. So, yeah, he clearly didn't want to be brought back. So, yeah, all of those yeah. medical studies, you know, ended up coming to that point. So, well, he might have had that one page in Gray's Anatomy that showed you where the femoral artery was that he ripped out when he hollowed it out for his gun to hide. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's the last thing I would ever think of doing is hollowing out a book to hide some evidence. I, that's still, it, it's, it's not a laughable thing because, you know, heinous things happen, but it, 
it seems silly some of the things that he did. And it's like those plastic beer cans where you twist off the top and there's no beer inside. It's just hollowed out so you can put your keys in there or whatever yeah. and hide them. I mean, I don't know. It's just I still keep laughing about it. It's just ridiculous. Somebody actually like believes they can haul out a book and hide evidence in there, especially when you're putting a, a gun inside. I mean, I don't know. It's just silly. Yeah, but I I completely and totally agree. I He obviously was guilty. Even though he pled not guilty, he... He didn't want to face his crimes, and you know he took his own life. So he marked off himself. <laughs> Justice was served with him taking his own life. In my opinion, I, I don't feel pity. I, you know, suicide is obviously a heinous thing that no one should ever think of. But in this case, I think you know it's justice served at this point. We didn't we didn't have to you know wait out the long you know appeals process, and this guy eventually. You know, he obviously was going to be found guilty, and he knew that. And, you know, he's not sitting on death row 20 years. I mean, you know, not to say that he was going to get put to death, but there, it's a 50-50 chance at that point with only being one murder victim, I think. Yeah, I, and it's, you know, there's so much evidence against him in this case that, again, that's why I don't really feel bad. I, I don't, you know, it's not, this is an open and shut case as far as I'm concerned, and he basically just let the process, you know, wrap up a lot faster than it would have going through formal channels. I don't like to see anybody kill themselves. I don't like to see anybody get killed in the first place. But, you know, when you're a piece of crap like this guy, you know, I don't don't feel that bad for you at the end of the day. I feel like this has been a common theme so far through our first four cases, (laughs) with the exception of the Jameson family where there wasn't really anything going on, you know, with uh, suspects. But, like, whenever we know who the killer is... You know, it's just, I don't feel that bad for you at this point. Like, you're you're an asshole. I mean, you're you're killing people. And, you know, the, the biggest thing you can take away from someone is their life. And he did that all over, what, a couple hundred bucks he was going to try and score off this robbery? That's just ridiculous. Senseless loss of life for, you know, no more than was, was taken from these victims. I, I, I wish the narrative would have read that, you know, he he was just arrested for robbery and, you know, whatnot, and it never led to the, you know, the murder of Julissa. But, you know, it's history at this point, almost 10 years removed, and thank goodness there has been no repeat offenders since then, you know. some of the, Sometimes these things, you know, take on a, a uh, copycat-like profile, but... You know, thank goodness that nobody else is. And I'm sure there's still people every day using Craigslist to do bad things, but you know, nothing at this level that we know of, anyways, right? Yeah, I think there was a a case I'm remembering that involved uh, a job in the classifieds on Craigslist where it was like for farm work, and the guy showed up, and then they like and they kill him or hit him over the head with a shovel or something, and threw him in a pit. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. It's not related to this case. But, yeah, I mean, we are lucky in the sense that you can have, you know, Craigslist and, you know, it can exist and people can still buy, sell, and trade on there and not be terribly worried that this is really running rampant with violence. Um, you know, but that, that's it, it is one of those things, you know, you're using Craigslist. It It is shady. Uh, there's times where I choose to sell things on eBay because they're high value and I don't want to get robbed. So let alone advertising, you know, erotic services, you know, it's risky. You've got to know that. And, you know, in in life, as in all things, you need to minimize risk. And you're not minimizing risk by being on these things. And then bad things can happen to you when you're doing things like this. So, you know, on one hand, I, while I feel bad for these people, they also do put themselves in a situation that if they weren't doing this, that it never would have happened. And so when you step back and look at the whole picture, you know, you're doing something that's, first of all, it's illegal. And then, you know, you're going to have shady people who are partaking in these illegal activities with you. And you're putting yourself in a situation that isn't necessarily the best situation. So you've got to look at it from that perspective as well. Now, while I don't want anybody to get killed and I don't want anybody to get hurt doing these things. And quite honestly, I think that what these women were doing on here, while it's technically illegal in most places, I don't necessarily agree with that and don't think that it necessarily should be uh, for this reason, you know, because if you make these things legal, then you can hopefully mitigate some of the risk 
and some of the risky people that come and do these things. I completely and totally agree. And I think the moral of the story with this case at the end of the day is Big Brother's watching. There's a digital footprint to everything you do. So, Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, my favorite case, the one that really got me into this stuff, is uh, the case of the Golden State Killer. And that dude was on a tear for years and years and years. And he would leave some evidence, but he also did a pretty good job of concealing his identity. And they were had a really hard time finding out who this dude was. And quite frankly, he left enough evidence to be captured because he was eventually. But, you know, this is just the exact opposite of that guy. You know, like this, this dude goes and hits up some places, has no gloves on, has no mask, leaves, you know, a digital paper trail, like all these things behind. And it's like you can see how to do it the quote unquote right way to get away with it as long as you can. Or you do it this way where you get captured in a week because you're an idiot. Moral of the story, kids, don't be an idiot. That's right. Especially so, if you're looking to commit crimes. Don't commit crimes, but if you're going to do it, don't be an idiot about it. Yeah. If you commit crimes, do it the right way. Conceal your identity. <laughs> don't do it on the internet. All right. With that, we're going to wrap up. Um, thank you guys so much for listening to this week's case. Uh, we'll have another one out next Monday. Uh, if you enjoy the show, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, I do want to plug that we are going to do... Um, we have an interesting idea for an episode that we're going to do for a Halloween special, and I'll call it a bonus episode. And the reason it's a bonus episode is because, um, you know, right now I'm not 100% sure on how this is going to be executed, but it's not necessarily going to be a, uh, a standard true crime show. So this one will be more of like a bonus episode, and uh, hopefully you guys enjoy it. So I think it's going to be fun, and I'm happy to work on it. So hopefully you guys enjoy that. Just want to let you know. So we'll mark it as a bonus episode. So if you don't care about this, skip it. Go to the next one. But anyway, I think it'll be entertaining. If you'd like to support us financially, please head out to our website, www.killerpod.net. And you can click the support button at the top of the page or via the navigation menu. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, at killer underscore podcast. We are on Instagram, at killer podcast, all one word. We have a Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash killer podcast, or you can just email us killerpodcast at gmail.com. So that being said, we are done for this week. We're going to put the case file away and we will see you guys on Monday. Stay safe, everybody.